0: I'll do keep that passage open before you. It happened when I was uh, in my late teens. I had uh, been recommended to my denomination for ministerial training. I'd already begun some of that by attending college and uh, was now about to map out my seminary training and had been through the processes of the denomination's uh, mill of uh, assessments, interviews. Eventually, I'd gone before the grand committee of the denomination and had been granted uh, recognition as a candidate for the Christian ministry. And now I was given an interview by the committee of the seminary that eventually the denomination were recommending that I attend. At the grand committee, they had made some sport with me, which was uh, something I'd been used to at school but was not expecting really in in a Christian church and in a denomination. They made sport really of things that I had written. I had written my own personal statement of faith. Some of the things I talked about in that personal statement were things like the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, I had written about the penal substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus and explained what I meant by that. And uh, the principal of the theological seminary had uh, mocked me for these remarks and had said words to the effect that they would soon drive those notions out of my immature mind, or worse to that effect. The impact on me was that I began to reassess whether, in fact, I wanted to go to the denomination's seminary. I talked to my minister and my elders in my local church, and they supported me in in applying for another seminary. And uh, I went before the committee to explain to them why it was that I wasn't going down the route that they proposed. I never forget his words. After he had uh, remonstrated with me, he warned me. He said to me, you take this route, and we will personally see to it that you never, ever have a church in Scotland, and that you, if you end up in the ministry at all, will end up in some obscure little mission hall in the back of Beyond. This is it. <laughs> uh. but, 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 but I do, rem- I do remember I remember leaving that meeting, I remember it was in the west end of Glasgow, and I remember coming out there, my head was swimming with this, with the decision, the things that I would said there, I was shy, retiring, and uh, not used to really speaking to people as grand, and in those days, in those days, ministers looked grand, they wore dog collars, and clerical collars, and, and black suits, and black you know, stocks for their collar, and, and they looked grand, and they smelt, kind of official. And, 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 and all of these things were in my senses, and I, as I walked away, this was everything I'd ever known. This denomination was everything I'd ever known, and here I was, I had the temerity in my teenage years to say to these grand and great people that I couldn't take their advice and that I was being committed to to the views that I had of the Bible and of of, uh, the authority of the Bible, but also the way of salvation as it is in Christ. My head was spinning. Had Had I sunk my career before it had even begun? Well, that came back to my mind when we were preparing for this section of Scripture. Because if you've been following it, or even if you haven't, I'm going to tell you now anyway, so that you can catch up. But here we have the the disciples, Peter and John, and they've just been before a council far greater and grander than the council of the denomination before which I went. Here they were, they were told by the religious authorities, that, that is, by the highest ecclesiastical court in Israel. The court which was the depository, of all revealed truth about God. The court, which had the responsibility of the government and guidance of God's chosen people. They'd been told by this court that they were to be silent about the name of Jesus. Here they have the theologians, here they have the religious practitioners. Here they have the defenders of thousands of years of history apparently against them. And what did they do? Well, you can look at the text. What did they do? When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Literally, they went to their own they went to their own, a phrase that's used elsewhere, for example, of Paul's friends when Felix commanded that none of Paul's own, his own, should be prevented from attending to his needs. This language we find used of Jesus. He came to his own and his own people while they had, did not receive him. Jesus had come to his own and they refused to welcome him except for those who believed and were born of God. So the phrase his own there means, as it is translated in the ESV, their friends, their family, their close associates, their neighbors, and here it refers to the church of God. The church is composed of the people of God, and they are their people. They went to their people, to their own, to those to whom they belonged in the bundle of life that we call the church of God. And this is something I think we need to remind ourselves of as we, we gather in this beautiful sanctuary this evening. We need to remind ourselves that in spite of the formality, a necessary formality because of the size of the numbers involved, that there is essentially among us as the people of God, an essential connection that defies the formality and takes us to the heart of a heart connection and connectedness with one another as God's people, our people, our people, our own. And that this is the place where if nowhere else in the world you are safe, if nowhere else in the world you feel as if you belong, you should belong here. I remember the first Sunday after that head-spinning day, back in the 1960s, when I was only two or three years of age. And I remember the next Sunday going to church, a building very like this building, in fact, very like this building, in shape and size, and sitting with God's people and feeling safe because I was with my own. Well, I hope you find that here. I hope you find among us those to whom you belong you don 't always feel it on Sundays when there 's so many people, but there are small groups that you can belong to where you can feel that connectedness much more acutely than you can in the larger group. Well, they come to their own, and then Luke tells us that they lifted up their voice together. The New American Standard Version says they did it with one accord the sV says they did it together. But they did it together, not just physically doing it together. They did it because they were of the same mind. It's likely that one person prayed and expressed the cares and convictions of them all, but they were united behind that one person's prayer. There was unity. There was friendship. There was a bond. There was a common purpose. There was a common way. They were of one heart and one soul, we're told, in verse 32. What did they do together? They lifted up their voice together in prayer. And here is God-glorifying, Scripture-saturated, Christ-centered, church-building prayer. And it's full of God, full of Scripture, and full of faith. Follow me as we walk through the prayer. First of all, it's full of God. Do You notice that in the structure of this prayer, there are five verses taken up with who God is, and two verses taken up with the problem. That's a good proportion. Five verses taken up with who God is. They only mention the crisis at the very end of the prayer. Now there's a sense of which, does it strike you that we come to God in prayer, and we do spend time when we're offering a prayer of adoration, telling God Who God is. Does it ever strike you as strange that we do that? And you must understand that we don't tell God who God is in case He's forgotten who He is. We're telling God who God is for our sakes, not His. Uh, We're reminding ourselves as we speak to God who it is that we're addressing, who it is that we're adoring, who it is that we are drawing near to as we come in our prayers. We're confessing the kind of God that God is. We're hallowing God's name, to use the language Jesus taught us to use. Hallowed be your name. Before ever we pray anything, thy kingdom come, we say, first of all, holy is your name. We set God apart in our minds. And I want you to notice, you see, as they come to God, they don't take the persecution personally. From the beginning, they assess their situation theologically and Historically. Now, that's the right thing for a Christian to do. We're not to look at our circumstances and then stop there. We're to look at our circumstances from a God perspective, not simply our own perspective. Too often we look at things from our own human point of view and we think, how does this affect me? How does this impact me? What do I feel is happening in this to me? And if we do that, what ends up happening is that we get all over the place. We're all over the place emotionally and spiritually. They start their prayer, do you notice, by focusing on God. God as sovereign. Here they were in a situation where the Sanhedrin was making a power play against the church, so their prayer began with an assertion of God's absolute sovereignty. Do you see what they're doing? They're going over the heads of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the major religious, ecclesiastical body in Israel. What do you do when they're against you? Well, you do something that you're permitted to do in the Bible. You go over their heads. You go to God. You go to the sovereign. Sovereign Lord, they say. And what they're doing with that language is they're asserting God's absolute sovereignty. This word Lord here is a Greek word, despotes, that gives us our English word despot. When we think of a despot, we think of someone who has absolute authority and control. We often have negative impressions of the word. The word despotes in Greek, however, has absolute authority and control without the negative aspect that we have in our English usage. He is the master. That word is used of the master. Jesus is our master and we owe our allegiance, and we can deny Jesus, the despotes, we can da- deny Jesus as our master by not confessing him before men. In Revelation chapter six, the saints who are slain for the Word of God and their witness cry out In heaven we're told, Sovereign Lord, despotes, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge? and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. In other words, you have the power, you have the authority, you have the control, you are the sovereign, and you are the creator. Do you notice that? You made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Everything is yours. Because you made it, you own it. Because you made it, it's yours. It belongs to you. What they needed to know, these men, as they came together to their friends, this day they were released by the Sanhedrin. What they needed to know was that God was sovereign, that he was in charge, that the universe was his, that he was in absolute control of their lives and in absolute control of what's going on in the world. The last thing they needed right now was therapy. They needed theology. They needed a view of God. They need to be able to say with Augustus Toplady, unfortunate name, great man, Augustus Toplady who wrote, a sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to do and command, he, comf- he smiles on my comforts abound, his grace as the dew shall descend, and walls of salvation surround those he delights to defend. He is the sovereign. He is the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. He is the one who said, let there be and there was, creates and makes things ex nihilo by the very word of his mouth. And because the earth is his and because he is the sovereign, his lordship is the highest court of appeal. At the end of the day, it's where I stand in relation to this God that is the most important thing of all. Their prayer is full of God. Secondly, their prayer is full of Scripture. What does the church do when it's under pressure? It turns to God, and it turns to Scripture, because Scripture is the breathed-out Word of God. Whenever I hear Scripture, I'm hearing God. Whenever the Word of God is truly proclaimed, God's voice is truly heard. So they turn to the Scripture. And everything they have to say about God and everything else that's going on in their life is shaped by the Word of God. The view of God is shaped by the Scripture. That very title, Sovereign Lord, is used in Daniel 9 and Jeremiah 4. The idea of God as Creator, the, the reference they use here, actually, of God's creating the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them comes from Psalm 146 and verse 6. That Psalm warns against putting your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. That Sam spoke into my situation back there as a teenager when these men that I held in such high esteem and who were so august and so impressive in their office and in their influence and so on, my view of them was shattered by their view of the Bible and their view of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and their threat to me. And here are these men, Peter and John, in a worse situation than mine. Here they are. They've been before the Council of Judaism. The Council of Judaism has ruled against them, ruled against their master, the Lord Jesus, has hounded him to death. Princes have let them down. Samus talks about that. It's in that context. That the, pers- the person of God is told to look to God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. In fact, later on in that very psalm, and you can see why it came to their mind, later on in that very psalm, talks about God being the champion of the prisoner who sets the prisoners free. Peter and John have just been released. Psalm 146 comes to their mind. They come with it to their prayers. You are the creator of all things. That's how their view of God was shaped by the Bible. Look at their view of the Bible itself, the the authority of the Scripture. They, They saw the divine author as the Holy Spirit who spoke the second Psalm through the human author. Sovereign Lord who... Through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Those words, who through your said, God spoke by the Spirit through the mouth of David. To them it was the word of God. There's great insight, isn't it, to the authority, the inerrancy, the absolute sufficiency of the Bible. And they made their judgment based not on an odd phrase or two arrested out of its context, but they looked at the Bible, and especially looking at one of the Psalms of David, they noticed that everything in that particular psalm referred to them and their situation. Look how they put it. They quote from Psalm number 2 this time, in verse 25 and 26. Together, God, the Spirit, and David foretold in that psalm that the anointed, that is the Messiah, a descendant of David, would be targeted by an international conspiracy, and yet in spite of that would remain victorious or would be victorious over all his enemies. The psalmist brings together a number of ideas. He brings together the idea of God's Messiah, verse 1, God's King, verse 6, God's Son, verse 7. He links this figure who is Messiah, King, and Son, with God's almightiness, God's sovereignty. The one who is God's Messiah, God's King, and God's Son, will be given the nations as his inheritance. All of that's in Psalm number two. One day, all the nations of the world will belong to him, and he will rule over them and bring God's crushing victory against his enemies. Not only that, but you notice their interpretation of Scripture. They, the interpretation of Scripture, not only its authority and its God, the God of the Bible and the authority of the Bible, but the interpretation of the Bible, they had the key in their hand to understand Sam 2. And all the other Sam's in, in, the, not Sam, S-A-M, but you know the one I mean. The Sam's in the book of the Bible. What is the key that unlocks these Sam's? The key is Jesus. Jesus had put the key into their hands. Luke, who's writing this book of Acts, had written earlier in uh, the first part of his work, Luke 24, that Jesus had said this to them, Behold, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So what is the key to understanding the Bible? The key to understanding the Bible is in your hands, it is Jesus. Hence, these Christians quote the opening words of the psalm exactly as they, they were to describe a conspiracy of nations and peoples and kings and rulers against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's how they interpreted the psalm. Who were these plotters? They were the leaders and the people of Israel and the Gentiles. Here's what they say. In this city, Jerusalem... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, that is whom you Messiah Christed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There was a rebel alliance. There was a grand international conspiracy. There were the Gentiles, the Greek world, the world of Rome. But there were also the peoples, the peoples of Israel, that is, the tribes of Israel. Now this is staggering. You need to understand, staggering, that this early on they should put all these bits together in this prayer. Because what they are saying is this, that insofar as the peoples of Israel rejected the Messiah Jesus, they ceased to be the Lord's people. It's a staggering word. They put Israel alongside unbelieving Gentiles. They put Israel alongside Pontius Pilate the Roman, Herod Antipas, with some royal blood, but who was an evil man. And they're saying that this gathering together, that language has been used already in chapter 4 of the Sanhedrin. Coming together, gathering together. It's the same language as Psalm 2. The nations and the people gathering together, assembling themselves in an alliance against the Lord and against his anointed. The plotters and the anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? Well, say, say these people, it's Jesus the Messiah. Amazingly, the people hadn't realized that there was a plan and purpose of God that included that included the sufferings as well as the glory of the Messiah. This plan and purpose of God had been plotted and planned in all eternity, it had begun to be implemented outside the gates of the Garden of Eden with a promise of one who was to come who would crush the enemy. Peter calls him, Your holy servant, Jesus. What he's doing is bringing together some of the Old Testament language. The book of Isaiah, for example, brings together these ideas of a royal son and a suffering servant. Someone descended from David, a boy who will be born of a virgin, yet who has divine titles and kingly honors on the one hand, and this other figure the suffering servant, and he brings these two things together. And here in this prayer, both these ideas are brought together. Jesus Christ is God's anointed. That is, he has a royal qualification. He is the Messiah. But he is the servant who obeys God, who will obey God to the point of suffering and death. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And the church, here's the third thing that they note in their interpretation of this psalm. The church consists of those who self-consciously can call David our father, David. They're saying that Christians view themselves as the true Israel, the true messianic kingdom, the heirs of God's promises. And that's how they interpret the main outline of that psalm that they quote here in verses 20. Five and 26. But how do they apply it to their situation? They say that these nations were raging against God. And as they look at what's just happened to them by the Sanhedrin and so on, what they see is that there is in the world, the nations of the world are raging against God. And that the killing of Jesus is a manifestation of the rage the world feels Against the sovereign God who is, the God who is there. Here's what it looks like that humanity, given the opportunity, will murder its maker. That's what the story of Jesus is teaching. And that's what Psalm 2 is all about. They were raging against the Lord and against His anointed, like a great storm at sea. The wicked were like a troubled sea that cannot be quiet, its waters tossing up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You see, in their prayer, they help us to see our world as it is, as they saw their world as it is. The world's peoples, especially its leaders, back then princes, kings, today experts and celebrities and actors and professors and scientists and clergymen raging against the God of the Bible, the God who is there. You've heard them do it. There's nothing in religion. Religion is the source of every trouble that there is in the world. Christianity is repressive to women and minorities. Think of all the violence and the wars Which religion has spawned, you know these things. They're set day and daily by people in the media to you personally. And it comes down to the personal level. Something goes wrong in somebody's life, what's the first thing that they say? How can a good God let this happen? Even if they don't believe in God? How can a God of love allow suffering in the world? Have been asked that question so many in kind of Q&A sessions at universities that I usually respond by saying, who told you he was a God of love? Nobody else is telling you this. You didn't come by that idea out of the blue in your own head. Nobody's saying to you, God is a God of love. You got that idea from us. Without us, you wouldn't even think that God was a God of love. That's a little passing comment. Back to the text. Raging against God. That's what communism was doing in the 20th century, wasn't it? Raging against God, trying to silence Christianity. For 70 years, it reigned, as it were, over millions of people. During the 1930s, fascism troubled all of Europe. One of fascism's determination was to squash out biblical Christianity. So they engineered it so that Clergy who preached the Bible were fired from their jobs. And clergy that went along with the popular message were put in place because they held the purse strings. Church buildings, church parsonages, church salaries were all controlled by the state, which meant they were in the hands of Mr. Hitler. Islamic fundamentalism. It is determined to silence and squash Christianity. That's what it's done. In all the countries that, that it invaded and captured from Christians in its early days, it was a militant religion. It took over most of the Middle East, which was Christian long before Islam even existed. It was a native Middle Eastern religion. And it's determined to squash out Christianity. Christianity. And secular humanism that is rife in the West. It hates God. It hates Christianity particularly. It can put up with other things. Partly, it's even prepared to negotiate with Islam in its foolishness. But it hates the Christian God. There is a rage against God. That's what the New Testament says. Colossians 1, it says that we are not indifferent to the God of the Bible. You were hostile in your minds, it says in Colossians 1. Hostile in your minds against God. That's what they saw in their prayer. They come to God, and their prayer is full of Scripture. Scripture helps them to see what's going on in the world. There is a rage against God. But their prayer was not only full of God and full of Scripture, it was full of faith. One of the correspondences between the sermon and its fulfillment showed that God's enemies, though expressing their rebellion, were nonetheless doing what God's power and will had decided to happen. You can see as they pray that they're absolutely convinced they're full of faith in the providence of God. Do you notice that? Jesus' arrest is expressed as his being given over into the hands of of his enemies. The crucifixion of Jesus may well have been evidence of a ganging up against God. But in the end, you notice, they did to him whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This metaphor of God's hand, his mighty hand, has its roots in the Old Testament in God's purposeful will in action. God, just as You want to do something, you use your hand to do it. Make coffee, you put on the coffee maker. You want to read the newspaper, you lift up the newspaper. Your hand is the means by which you express what you want to do. You do what you want through your hand. God's hand is a metaphor for God's will in action in the world. And when these men laid their hands on Jesus, and when these men nailed him to that cross... They were doing by their own will and choice what God's hand determined should be done for the world's salvation. They were playing into God's hand. God's providence is real. So Peter, as he prays about this, reminds himself and the congregation that there is both a human and divine part to the cross of Christ. The cross has been a stumbling block to Jews, as it has been to non-Jews, laughing out loud. And it's led to all kinds of ridiculous euphemisms being used of the cross as if it were a mistake, or as if Jesus going to the cross was simply a demonstration of love. You know, he wanted to show us how much he loved us, so he died. I mean, that's like a boy and a girl walking along the side of a cliff, and the boy saying to the girl, you know, down these knees, I really, really, really love you. Just to show you I love you, I'm going to jump off the cliff. The girl should walk away from there thankful that she found that out early on before the relationship developed. You don't demonstrate your love by doing what Jesus did. That doesn't demonstrate anything on its own unless it accomplishes something. Cross, you can't euphemize away the cross using that kind of, that kind of language. It's nonsense. The cross was an expression of the will of God. Jesus did not die primarily as an example or even just to display love, though in it love is displayed, but he dies to deal with the very rebellion that led men and women to murder him. That's why he goes to the cross. And the cross was foreordained, planned before the foundation of the world, to provide salvation for rebels, for guilty sinners for rebellious subjects or the conspirators who wanted to murder their maker. So however bad things things may look, nothing happens to God's people outside of God's superintendence. You see, that's the way they're applying it to themselves. If the bad things that happened to Jesus were part of God's big plan for the salvation of the world, then the bad things that happened to us are also part of his plan so we don't need to be afraid. They, they're, com- they're, they're convinced of the providence of God. But do you notice when they pray, they're also committed to the mission of God. So having adored God as creator, revealer, ruler, and redeemer, the believers call his attention to the troubles at hand. It's almost like, you know, they've said what they have to say. They've, they've fortified their faith that God is in control of the situation. And do you notice how they refer? Now they just say to God, God... Notice these people who are against us. But would you please enable us, empower us, give us the strength so that we can do what you want us to do in the world. Let me read it to you. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, notice what they don't do. They don't say, look at their threats and bring the armies of heaven down on them and nuke them and terminate them right away. They don't pray that, do they? They don't pray for vengeance. I have to tell you there is a day of vengeance coming to the enemies of God's Christ. There is a day of vengeance coming. I would be... I would be disregarding my responsibility if I didn't warn you of that. In fact, the second psalm talks about a day of judgment when wrath will inevitably and invariably fall upon all those who reject God's Son. But this is not that day. And they understand that this is not that day. This is a day of good news. Grant your servant boldness to speak your word. Boldness here is a divine gift, not a moral virtue. These Christians aren't just stronger than you are or better than you are or, or firmer than you are or more confident than you are. This is a gift that God gives to those who ask for it. Boldness goes hand in hand with fear. Even Martin Luther, bold like a lion for the gospel, when he's confronted by his writings and given the choice, he's asked by the court, Dr. Luther, did you write all of these books? He says to them, Can I have a night to think about it? I love the fact that even Luther needed a night to think about it. Next morning, of course, he came and he he said, Well, my books are of different kinds. There are these little odd things, and there are these that I wrote a long time ago, and and there are these. But as, as to the heart of the matter, I wrote them. Here I stand. I can do no other. God helping me. No, this boldness is a gift from God, and it can live, cohabit, side by side with fear, with embarrassment, with nervousness, with shyness. It can be there nonetheless, boldness to stand up for you. And they pray that the proclamation would be accompanied by the intervention of God, by signs and wonders performed through the name of the servant Jesus. And we'll see that those signs and wonders are going to happen. The first one is rather scary and happens in the very next chapter. Signs and wonders will be done by the apostles. And this is, in fact, what God gave them. You can read that. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Power to witness. Power and grace to boldly speak up for the name of Jesus. And it gives us a hint, doesn't it? This is what the the mission of the church is. In this age, the mission of the church is to get the gospel out to the world. To keep clear that the gospel is right, and to get the gospel into our hearts, but to get it out to the world. That's the mission of the church in the world. And you can see why even that, isn't it? is informed by that psalm, because of the conclusion of that psalm too, there's an evangelistic appeal. Having talked about God giving the nations of the the, wor- the world to His Son, the King, the Messiah, the one that they've been against, He talks about the final judgment. He says, I'll make the nations your heritage, and you'll break them with a rod of iron. Dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. How does he end? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. It's an evangelistic appeal, isn't it? It's an appeal to come to the sun, it's appeal to believe in the Son, to come and bow the knee to the Son. Well, the prayer was answered, wasn't it? The prayer that they prayed that day was answered in verse 31. We read that the place where they prayed was shaken. And they were all filled with the Spirit, and they all spoke with boldness. Psalm 2 says this The one enthroned in heaven laughs at them. He laughs them to scorn. And the response to the prayer is an earthquake, symbolizing the awesome presence of God in their midst. There was an earthquake at Mount Sinai. There was an earthquake at the call of Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and exalted. There was an earthquake. As Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake when he rose from the dead. There's an earthquake later on in Acts when prison doors are opened. There's an earthquake here because God is going one day to shake the nations, the earth, the sea, the dry land. He will shake all things and all peoples. Handel's great Messiah, he so writes that little passage that it communicates something of the of the tension and the excitement and the shaking of that great day as God shakes all people, all nations, and demolishes the futile kingdom of man. There's a shaking and a filling as the Holy Spirit enables them to do what comes next. They speak the Word of God with boldness. Back in the year 400 A.D., 400, John Chrysostom, one of the great fathers of the church in Constantinople, began a series of 55 sermons on the Acts of the Apostles. And on commenting on this sermon, he says this, the whole place was shaken. And that left them all the more unshaken because of the presence of God. They felt the presence of God. There was peace. They were shaken, but not stirred. Or you would have thought the threats of the enemies would have silenced them, but bannings and burnings would never silence them. In the city of Lyon in France, five young men, just seminary graduates, they'd graduated from a seminary in Switzerland, had been traveling back from Switzerland. They'd been there for a few months in Geneva. And uh, in April of 1552, as they went back to their native town of Lyon, they were arrested and imprisoned. And they began a series of letter correspondence with John Calvin, that is quite heartrending to read. In March of the following year, 1553, they were sent back to they were taken to Paris, and then they were sent back to Lyon in May. And on May the 16th, they were told to prepare for death. All attempts to extradite them and free them had been exhausted. And here's what they wrote. It is true that one can have some knowledge of Scripture and talk about it, discuss it a great deal, but this is like playing charades. We therefore praise God with all our heart and give Him undying thanks that He has been pleased to give us by His grace not only the theory of the Word, but also the practice of it. And that he has granted us this honor, which is no small thing for us who are vessels so poor and fragile and mere worms creeping on the earth. And how had they been taught this? They write this by bringing us out to be his witnesses and giving us constancy to confess his name and maintain his truth. And the next day, five of them were taken out, burned at the stake. For their faith. God, notice their threats. Grant us boldness. The threats don't come like that today, they come more insidiously. They come in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the bedroom. They're threats to minimize your faith, to bury it deep underneath. Let's ask that God would notice their threats. Give us boldness for Jesus' sake. Lord, we pray that you would please take your word and write it in our hearts this evening. Grant us boldness to speak for Jesus, we pray. In his strong name, amen.